tears. Hey, Mike, can we get a little more light down here just so I can see a little better, like some kind of house light a little bit? I mean, I can't believe it. Summer has evaporated. It is four days before school starts. And I don't know if you guys, if y'all have kids or if you're ready for back to school or whatnot, but Meredith cries about once a day. Um, I keep remembering how great, you know, I want a reminder what the the greatness of some of that is. But she cries once a day because we have a a third grader now. Like, what, what happened? We're talking about getting ears pierced and things and I just, it's overwhelming. And, and so I'd love to keep her, my daughter, as this little tiny thing. And she won't be allowed to grow up. And, uh, but, but the problem is, is that she's growing all around me. The other, a couple of weeks ago, the other morning, it was like Saturday morning. We were laying in bed still. It was early. It was like 7.15. And I can hear my phone ringing in the other, and I keep it in the kitchen. It was ringing in the kitchen. I was like, it's Saturday morning. I mean, Really? So I was like, but, you know, somebody probably needs something. So I got up, and I went and checked it. And I was walking past the living room. I saw Haley sitting on the couch watching cartoons or whatever. She kind of DVR. She runs the DVR. She knows how to work all that now. So she's like, Dad, your show's been on there for two weeks. I deleted it and taped something else. I was like, who gives you that right? Fun. So I walk past her, another issue, and I pick up my phone, and I'm kind of rubbing my eyes, and I look at it, and it says, Dear Dad, Cooper and I need some juice. Love, Haley. She had gone past our bed, into the bathroom, got Meredith's phone, and sent me a text message. And I walked back in there, and she was laughing so hard. That was so funny. She had got, we didn't even know she knew how to text anybody. She texted me that her and Cooper needed some juice. So I hop out of bed and do that for her. She thought that was hilarious. I was like, this is crazy. So she's growing, and so we're, I'm not sure we're ready for back to school, but... Anyway, I'm kind of ready for the summer to begin. We've got a lot of exciting things that will be happening in the fall with our community, with the Vine, and, and uh, so we're really excited about some of those things happening. We'll be back in church in the park and doing some really cool stuff. And so back to school kind of brings kind of a, a freshness, and, uh, and so we're looking forward to that as well. But I've got another question for you, and the question really is, have you ever been in a place where you've been totally exposed? Like you've just, something has transpired and you are out there. Every eye is on you or every person is watching or you feel like the life that was once hidden or that once was sort of behind you or that you could keep behind closed doors was now out there for the entire world to see. You know, I think that on some level we've probably all been there at a place in time in our lives where we just felt like there was no place that we could, could run and hide. And I've kind of mentioned this story to a few of you before and so if you've heard it then that's just good for you. You hear it twice. But I've had a lot of experiences like that. I feel like a lot of the things that I do put my life out there, and then I'm like, oh, I wish I had that back, you know. And, and when I was in the fifth grade, I remember coming home and visiting with my mom and telling her that the girl that lived up the street, her name was Corey Thompson, hope she's listening on the website, was having her first boy-girl dance. And that was like a huge deal back in the fifth grade. I mean, that was a huge deal. And everyone was talking about it, and we rode the bus home every single day together. And Corey sat in the back, and I sat back there, and... I knew her well. We played together every single day. She was having a boy-girl dance, and everybody was talking about it. So I went home that day, and I was like, Mom, I got a, I got a problem. And that is Corey is having a dance, and I don't know how to dance. And she was like, being the perfect mom, was like, well, I'm going to teach you, you know? And I was like, I don't even know the, know the foxtrot or whatever. I want to know how to dance. But no, I was like, Mom, she was like, let me teach you. I was like, okay. So... My mom put on some Lionel Richie or whatever, you know, and uh, some Lady in Red, and we, we, um, <clears throat> we learned how to dance in my parents' bedroom. 
And my mom taught me, you know, the classic kind of camp, your hands on the hips, her hands up here, you know, kind of like five and seven, keeping them, you know, leaving a lot of room for Jesus in here because it's a three-way dance. And so, and you know, she's like, it's this, this is home, back and forth, just like this. And if you get really good, maybe you throw in a little spin, but that's it. You never go farther than this right here. We practice and practice and practice. My mom took me to the mall. I got a sweet new pair of Ocean Pacific corduroy shorts, short as can be, and white Sperry topsiders. They were awesome, and they are coming back, by the way. But though I, was, I had the sweetest outfit. And the day came where Corey was passing invitations, and we were staying outside at recess, and I was with all the cool kids, Matt Absher and Clinton Brinkater and all these kids. And they were awesome, and I was standing there with them. And she's passing invitations, and she's going down the row, and she comes to me, and literally... She steps right past me and hands it to the kid next to me. And I was thinking, oh, this, is, this can't be good. And sure enough, I didn't get invited. She didn't have an invitation for me. And I remember riding home on the bus that day thinking, just being devastated. I mean to the point where I wanted to crawl under it. Because they were all, we all rode in the back, and I wanted to crawl under those seats. But more so, I was so afraid of what I was going to have to tell my mom. And so I walked home, and it was the longest walk of my entire life, and it was like a four houses down. And so I walked slowly and slowly and slowly, and I got home, and I just said, and I just started crying. You know, I was a fifth grader, and I just was like, I was so broken, and I just felt like everybody was laughing at me because they all got to go. And I looked at my mom, and I was like, I, I didn't get invited. And of course, my mom's classic reaction to every bad thing that's ever happened to me in any kind of boy-girl relationship was simply this, do you want me to go beat her up? Except my mom would still probably do that. Um, she, uh, she said, you want me to beat her up? I was like, no, 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 I don't want you to beat her up. That's ridiculous. But I kind of did, actually. Um, but I remember that feeling of feeling like every eye in the place on this playground was staring at me like, I can't believe you didn't get invited. Or, or, and I just felt like there was nowhere else I could, I could possibly go or crawl to. And every part of my life was just hanging out there. And so they all went to the dance and they all had their great, I just, I didn't get to go. And, and I started really thinking about the past interactions that we've had over the past three weeks as we've really explored the nature of who God is. We've talked through Psalm 103 and we've explored God as being faithful and merciful and compassionate. And we've talked about God as, as hesed, that redeeming, abounding in love, kind of steadfast love. We talked about God's presence and God's sovereignty. I started really thinking about that and And it's one thing to talk about the nature of God and God's love. It's really easy for me to stand here or or for us to articulate it. But we can't really understand God's nature, God's love, until we're standing in the middle of it. You know, it's one thing to look at it on paper and for me to be able to say, no, look, Psalm 103 says that God is merciful. And it's another thing to be standing in the middle of your life and feeling like there is no mercy anywhere and that everything is stacked against you and life just hurts. And so I started thinking that that God's love and the nature of God is so experiential. It it, it is about us experiencing God. It's not about God saying, I'm a God of love. It's about finding ourselves in the middle of a God who loves us, and it becomes totally tangible. Now, a lot of us have different understanding of God's love based on what what we've grown up with, what we've been told about God. We bring different baggage to the conversation. So based on what maybe your own relationship with your father was like or what your understanding of love was in your home or what kind of church you went to or whether you went to church at all, we all bring different understandings of this concept of God's love and God's character and God's nature. And so it's one thing to hear it on paper and it's another thing to find yourself right in the midst of it at a place in your life where you are totally exposed 
and you come face to face with God's love. And this morning, we're going to look at a woman who has an encounter very similar to that which I'm describing. She finds herself in the middle of her deepest fear. Uh, She finds herself in the middle of this radical exposure. And she comes face to face with this experiential love of God. And it really has changed my perspective as I think about God's nature. Because it's something that I can talk about very easily. But it's very difficult to understand until we find ourselves just absolutely bathed in it. And so this morning, we're going to unpack that a little bit together out of the book of John chapter 8. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to pull it out and dive into John chapter 8. So there should be one around you. If you've got them, we're going to pull them out together. I want you to see this stuff. And it would be really easy for us to just throw stuff up on the screen if we had it or to read it. But I really want you to see it. I want us to be in the habit of opening God's Word. I want you to see these words on the page. I want you to go home. I want you to think through them. I want us to be in the habit together as a community of saying, we take our our teaching and our understanding of God's Word so seriously that we get into it every single week and that I hold mine. So if you have a Bible bring it. We're going to use it every week. If not, use ours, take ours, keep it. Um, they're there for you. If you don't own one, keep this one. We'd love for you to, uh, to have it. Book of John chapter 8 is where we're going to be this morning. And before we read that text together, let's pray. God, I thank you that you are a God who loves us so deeply. Um, I thank you, God, that you care for us more than more than we understand, and that that even though our understandings of your love vary, they vary based on our experience, your love doesn't change. It never is, is, it never has a variable to it. It is, it is abounding and steadfast and deep and forgiving and faithful, and and God, it is beyond all that we know or understand, and and, and your character is is so the same way, God, And, and you are more real than the air that we breathe. And God, we pray this morning that we might have just an encounter with you, that, that somewhere in the midst of all the things that are happening with back to school and things going on at work and stuff, that we just come face to face with you in a, really, in a very real way um, today. So just ask God right where you sit, just to speak to your heart. Say, God, just, just speak to my heart this morning. Just whisper that in your, in your heart. And pray for someone beside you, even if you don't know their name, if you've never seen them before, or even if it's your wife or your, your brother or whoever, just, just pray for them. Just ask that God would move in their, in their heart. God, we pray that you would allow your word to become um, powerful truth in our hearts and that you would penetrate us and just teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Bear with me a little bit this morning. I got some kind of voice issue going on. I'm not real sure if I'm feeling bad or if I'm dying or whatever, but we're going to push through. John chapter 8, starting in verse 2. Check this out. <clears throat> At dawn, he appeared, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and they sat, and he sat down to teach them. The teacher of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group. And said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Well, they were using this as a question. This question is a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, if one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. 
At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until Jesus, only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, we're, we're pretty familiar with this passage, and we're familiar with it because we use it as a, uh, in our culture as a way of referencing not to be judgmental. So we use that line, he who's without sin, throw the first stone. I mean, so we're familiar with the interaction, but, but man, I was really struck by this over the past few days, and really last night as I was really exploring this text, I was really struck by this interaction. I mean, it's a remarkable thing. I mean, Jesus is in the temple courts. Every time he went into town, he'd show up in the temple courts, and he literally would teach. He would sit on the ground and take, or take the position of a teacher, and people would gather around, and he would begin to explain the law to them. He would teach the law. And huge crowds would gather in the temple courts. They'd listen to every word that he, this word came from his lips. And the Pharisees were always running around trying to find ways to try and trick him or try and trap him. And so... It was this sort of constant tension between Jesus, the rabbi teacher, and Pharisees trying to catch Jesus in the snare. But they all gathered around anyway. So Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, and he's, and he's explaining the law. He's doing what he does as a teacher. And it says that the leaders bring this woman to him. And you can almost see the scene. I mean, because this is a male-dominated culture. These are all men, and Jesus would be teaching mostly, if not all, Men And these, these rulers, which are men, drag this woman into the temple courts, probably by her arm, and they stand her before Jesus and they say, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. Now, I am not, I, I, I'm not a brilliant by any shades of the imagination, but it takes more than one person to commit adultery. Yet, this group of people brings in the woman, which conveniently lets the man slip away, mainly because they probably set this whole thing up. They set it up to capture the woman and literally caught her in the act, A-C-T, the act of adultery. What that means, they didn't trick her into coming somewhere. They literally busted in the door and caught this woman in the act. And in Jewish law, in order to accuse someone of a crime like this, you had to have two witnesses, which means there were more than, more than one person that saw this. They they probably push in the door. They catch this woman in the act of committing adultery. They seize her, which means maybe her clothes were torn. Maybe they weren't even on. They bring her to the temple courts. Man escapes because it's probably a setup. And they stand her before Jesus. <clears throat> now, last night I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, what is she thinking? I mean, how unbelievable to be in this scenario. Here I am, dragged before in the most public kind of arena there is in, in, the, in the area, the temple courts. Everybody gathered there. They did business there. They taught there. People were everywhere. And I am drug in and my whole life exposed. I mean, I've just been caught red-handed in adultery. I mean, literally committing an act. I'm embarrassed, I'm shocked, and I'm fully exposed. And then not only that, they marched me before Jesus. And surely she had heard about Jesus. I mean, this is the guy that was going around the countryside casting out demons and healing people. I mean, he's a miracle worker. He was feeding 5,000. And, and they're standing me before this person, and every eye in the place is on me because of the commotion. I mean, you can almost see him coming in literally through the outer gate of the temple, dragging her in. People parting ways, standing her in front and looking at Jesus and saying, Hey, can everybody hear? We caught this woman in the act of adultery. 
I mean, I don't know about you, but your sins and your secrets have probably never been exposed to that extreme. Something slips out, people find out something, it goes around, we kind of quelch it, we've got teams of people that put things together and make it look not as bad as it is, but I mean, we do damage control. She has got no damage control. She's standing there exposed, probably looking around going, where's that dude? He's gone, it's just me. And they look at Jesus and they say, we caught her in the act of adultery. We had witnesses, we got two folks at least that saw the whole thing. The law of Moses tells us that we have to stone such women. What do you say? Well, it's kind of a, a funny little argument because technically it's not totally true. It's, it's a really bad argument that they're trying to catch Jesus in a trap. Deuteronomy, technically the law in Deuteronomy says that if a man is, is caught having relations with a betrothed virgin, then you take both of them outside of town and you throw rocks on them. Now, still sounds a little harsh, but <clears throat> nonetheless, that was the law. You drag them both, she's a betrothed virgin, you take them both, you take them outside of town, you heave rocks on them. So technically the law didn't say if you catch him, you just bring the woman and you stone her. But they were trying to catch Jesus in a trap. And there's two sides to this argument. The first one is, if Jesus says not to stone her, it looks as if he's going against the law of Moses. So then the Pharisees have grounds to say he's a lawbreaker. You know, he's breaking the law of Moses. The law of Moses says that we stone such women. Jesus says have compassion on her. He's obviously not keeping the law. He can't be a good teacher. No good teacher would not keep the law of Moses. So they've got him in that little bond. The second part of the argument is that the Jewish people didn't have the right to sentence anyone to death. We know that from Christ's, Christ's own execution. They didn't have the right, because they were under Roman oppression, to carry out a death sentence. So if Jesus said, yes, the law of Moses says to kill her, take her outside and throw rocks at her until she dies, he technically would be breaking Roman law, and they would have him in that. So, and this is what the Pharisees did. If you read through Scripture, Pharisees' interaction with Jesus were full of all kinds of things like this. They tried to set him up so that he would be caught in a place where they could have leverage then to hand him over to the Romans or to hand him over according to their own law and either have him put to death or put in jail. So this is the perfect plan. You can almost see them kind of coming up with this thing and then we'll find this woman and who wants to be the guy that, you know, all the hands go up, you know, I mean, I don't know. But they, they catch him in the act and here she is. And I just feel for her. I mean, my gosh, she's standing there. And here's Jesus. And they bring her before him. Here he is. And, and they say, what, what are you going to do? What do we do? And I love Jesus' body language here. And there's a lot that can be said for what happens. And we're going to speculate because there's really no idea. But it says that he stoops down. And he begins to write in the dirt. I think with his finger. Just who knows what he writes. I think he's just kind of letting them know that he's not threatened. And they kept questioning him. And he's just messing in the dirt. And you know this crowd of guys, there's tons of anxiety going, what's going to happen? And Jesus is not even really paying attention. And this woman is standing there thinking, I'm about to be killed. They're, they're asking him if they should take rocks and kill me with them. And Jesus is kneeling in the dirt, and he's just writing. And it says that he stands up or, or he kind of straightens up and he looks at him and he says that famous line, you know, if you are without sin, you who are without sin, throw that first stone. And the text kind of explains it as the older ones kind of began to walk away first. They dropped their rocks and they began to walk away all the way down to the younger ones. And you can make speculation about the older ones were smarter or whatever. But he, anyway, they just filed out. 
And after Jesus said that, he kind of bends back down and he starts to ride in the dirt again. And they go out one at a time and just leave the area. Jesus stands back up and he's left standing here with this woman. I mean, they left her standing there. I mean, you talk about just heart pounding. I bet she is thinking, this is unbelievably awful. I mean, here I am before Jesus, who we don't know what her thoughts were about Jesus, but at the very least, she would have regarded him as an unbelievable teacher. And with that is, is reverence and respect and awe. And, and uh, so she's standing there in his presence. And, and he looks at her and he says, woman, is, is no one left to accuse you? And technically that word woman is not a derogatory term. It's not like, hey, woman, bring me some chips. It's like, you know, he, he actually uses the same term to address his mother from the cross. So when he's hanging on the cross, he uses it to address his own mother. So it's basically a term of family that's used there. And he looks at her and he says, woman. A term of endearment and family. He says, woman, is, is no one left to accuse you? And she says, sir, sir, no one. And he says, well, then neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. And I just am so struck with this interaction because we can talk a lot about the nature and character of God. We can talk a lot about God's love, and we are really great at talking about God being a God of forgiveness and God being a God of mercy. But until we've stood in the presence of God, exposed and felt the realness, the real nature of who God is, it's almost impossible to understand. And the reason this is so important to me, and this, this kind of concept has really been so intriguing to me, is because I just think the church, as a church, we really miss so much of the gospel so often. Because I think the church, Big C, really likes pretty people. I mean, I really believe the church, the, the gathering of people of God, love pretty people. And not physically, but we just love people that seem to have it together. We, we love people that have a story that are redeemed, that have come on the other side of some great tragedy or some great struggle to testify about how great God is. We love the former gang member that's following Jesus. We love the former addict that can give their testimony. We love the former person who's, who's walked through tragedy and could stay on the other side. But the church does not know what to do with really messy, sinful people. We don't know what to do with people like this woman. And that's why I think the story for a lot of us makes us uncomfortable. If we think about it, anything other, as sort of, anything other than this sort of allegory metaphor about why we shouldn't judge people. But if we really get down to the nuts and bolts of it, this is a, a woman caught in adultery, exposed with all of her sin, standing before the God of the universe and the entire watching world, petrified and afraid and humiliated. And as a church, I don't think we know what to do with people like this. We know what to do with pretty people and redeemed people, but we don't know what to do with messy people. Years ago, I was sitting in a soup kitchen in, in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada, of all places, and uh, I sat across a table from this 18-year-old girl named Kim, and uh, Kim was there carrying out some community service because she'd spent some time in jail and in, in um, juvenile detention, and and, and we just, I could look into her eyes and see that Kim was an absolute train wreck. Uh, she had bruises on her face. She was just so emaciated then that she looked like she was dying. And we just started talking. I just kind of opened up this conversation. And, and through the course of an hour, I realized that, that at 13, Kim left her house. Her, her, her parents beat her. Um, she was literally living as a prostitute with a, a, just an unbelievable drug addiction. Um, anything she could do to come up with money to feed that habit. 
She ran into the arms of men because she felt like that they would help her in terms they'd beat her. It was horrible. She was in and out of jail. And I looked at her. She's 18 years old. She looked like she was about a 45-year-old woman. And it just, it broke my heart. And I visited with her, and I started talking to her about God's love. And, of course, she was moved by the concept, but couldn't believe it to be true. And uh, I thought a lot about that interaction I've had over the years. And I thought that the church loves the redeemed Kim. We love it when Kim would stand up here and give her testimony and talk about how I used to do this, and I used to struggle with this, and then I met Jesus, and everything changed. But Kim wasn't like that. I mean, Kim was a raging addict, and she was still working as a prostitute. She was still doing these things. She was still stealing stuff to feed this addiction. She was still involved in fights. She still had bruises hidden under makeup. And I thought, what does the church do with Kim? I mean, what if she walked in these doors this morning and sat down right beside you and your family? I mean, most of us like to think that we'd be glad she's here. But I mean, truly, how do we encounter and embrace her? You know, the church may love pretty people, but the reality is is that we're all just a bunch of messed up people. We're not a whole lot different than this woman. You know what, what we really are, if we want to be really honest, is that we're one situation away from being her. I mean, at any point in any of our lives, if we're totally honest, we are one situation away from being this woman. Caught red-handed in the middle of our biggest mistake or fear or whatever and exposed to the world. And we like to pretend that we're not, that we've got our lives together and we're not as bad as so-and-so and so-and-so. But if we're really honest, we live lives that are totally secretive. We're not really authentic with each other as the church. We, We live lives, we know that we have secret sin, we've got addictions, we've got marriages that are falling apart, we've got all kinds of things. We could name them. And if it's not that, we're that one person that thinks we have none of those. We're all messy. And the, and, and, and the amazing thing about Jesus in the gospel is that it exposes everything. There's a reason that John talks about Jesus being the light of the world and, and the light exposing the darkness. The gospel of Jesus Christ exposes our lives. It exposes them for who we are. It exposes these men for who they were, for trying to put this trap together to manipulate Jesus and her. It exposes this woman in the middle of her sin for who she is, but in the middle of all of those things, we find this experiential, redeeming love of God that in the middle of the place that we felt like we are the most alone, we find God most present. And that is what I find so remarkable about the love of God, is that in the places that we should be hung out to dry, totally isolated and alone, we come face to face like this woman with this sort of swallowing, redeeming love. And I really started thinking about Jesus' interaction with her. After everybody leaves, what that must have been like. And I wish there, you know, we had more words. I wish the conversation was deeper than that, or, or at least we had it recorded that way. But we have him looking at her saying, where is everybody gone? Is anybody left here to condemn you? And, and she says, no one, sir. And he says, neither do I. I mean, at the moment that Jesus could have lectured her, could have said, you know, I've been watching you. This is how we think God treats us anyway. I've been watching you for seven years, Trev. For seven years, you have struggled, or ten years, you have struggled with the exact same thing. Time and time again, you come and say, oh, Lord, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm, I'm really trying to change. We're waiting for Jesus to lecture her, to look at her and say, listen, 
if you're going to live this way, you've got to do this and this and this. And I'm going to forgive you, but you've got to hear me say X, Y, and Z. Because we feel like that's how God treats us. When we come face to face with God, it's a lecture from heaven about how our lives need to change. But Jesus' interaction with her is remarkable. He just says, neither do I. And then he tells her to go and leave her life of sin. But notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, go and leave your life of sin and I will forgive you. Which is how most of us approach our relationship with Christ. If I just get rid of this, if I just cut this loose, then God will really forgive me. And so we work so hard to make our lives look pretty because we think that's how we're going to earn the love of God because it's how we earn the love of people. We have to make amends to build our trust back. But Jesus doesn't say that to her. He doesn't look at her and say, go and leave your life of sin and I'll forgive you. He just says, I don't condemn you. Don't sin anymore. And I love the order. I don't think it's any accident in God's kind of amazing grace that that's the way Jesus says it. He says, I love you. I mean, she is exposed as any of us have ever been. And he says, I love you. He calls her woman. This is a term of affection. I love you. I don't condemn you. Leave that life. So why when the woman, when she leaves, is she going to leave that life of sin? It's not out of fear. It's because she came face to face with the love of God. See, the responding way that you and I live is when we come face to face with God's love, it changes me. I can't remain the same. I see the world differently because of how God has treated and loved me. And it compels me to live differently. And, and you, we can be on any side of this little interaction. I mean, a lot of us in our Christian culture are rock throwers. We are really great at standing around and holding up that one person that we know has struggled and picking up and heaving our rocks. We use names, we get in our little circles, we talk about so-and-so is going through a divorce and what this person's doing and you can believe this happened. And We may not say it to their face, but it's the exact same thing. We're exposing them for all they are and we're heaving our rocks. And our Christian culture is great at it and the world thinks Christians are hypocrites because they are. They think they're judgmental because they are. We claim this is some kind of banner of let he who has, a, you know, has no sin throw the first stone, but we're not throwing stones. We're just talking about you. I'm not killing you. I'm just putting you out there. And we, we live that way. And our churches, Mary and I were talking about this this weekend, are full of this. I mean, the worst place for gossip in the world is our church. The big C, not necessarily here or anywhere else, just big C. But I look at Jesus' interaction with this woman and I think, that's me, man. I am, the only reason I am who I am is because at some point in time I was exposed and God loved me first. And I don't know where you are this morning. I mean, in, in all honesty, I don't, I don't know where you are. I don't know if you're hiding <clears throat> or if you feel like your life is in that place where you're radically exposed for the first time in a long time. Or if you're one step away from feeling like the whole world is getting ready to find out what you've been secretly living and doing. Or if you're a Pharisee, if you've lived that church life and you have pretended like you have got it all together and you are a rock thrower, or at least you're the person that holds up while everybody else throws rocks at her, we fall into these categories. But the, the nature of God 
should change the way that we think and see. And we talk about this a lot in here, but the nature of God should change the way we think and see the, the world around us. And Jesus looks at this woman, he says, I don't condemn you. Go and live, live differently. That, that same message is for you this morning and for me. That God looks at us and he says, I know you're a mess. You don't have to pretend you're not. I mean, I see it every day. Um, I've seen you in your worst. That moment that, that maybe the world doesn't see you as exposed, I see everything. We don't hide anything from God. God loves us in the middle of that. I mean, literally, we are swallowed by the love of God, that it is that redeeming. Um, do you think this woman is, we don't know anything else about her. We never see her again in Scripture, but I guarantee you she's not the same. I'm not saying she becomes some kind of great martyr, but I'm just saying she's not the same. She never walks away from that encounter and can remain the same. This morning, I want you to hear this. God is absolutely, totally in love with you. No matter what you've done, where you've been, or what you're doing, God is radically in love with you. He may hate the lifestyle and the things that you're engaged in. He may hate the things that you're dealing with, but it doesn't change the fact that God is absolutely in love with you. And that God is, is calling you to experience this love. He is drawing you into him. So quit fighting and just be swallowed by the love of God. Allow all your guards to sort of fall to the floor and just say, I want to be exposed. Because there's no safer and more comforting place than to be totally exposed to the love of God. Let's pray this morning and then continue in worship.